This is a Federal News Network podcast. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is relying more and more on software and not just trained eyeballs to analyze satellite imagery and other data. To improve how it develops software, though, the agency has a new strategy called the NGA Software Way. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with NGA's Chief Technology Officer, Alex Lair. We put this out for really anyone delivering software at NGA that could be government employees, industry, even commercial products that NGA is buying. There are significant parts of the software way that relate to how we want to work with those companies. And so we hope this will set common expectations of how we can deliver useful software faster and for our mission. And you guys just released these new tech focus areas, and it's obvious that software is such like a key part of all of the technology that you're considering today. How do those two efforts, initiatives, documents kind of connect? So if you can think of the NGA technology focus areas as what we are focused on, the version we released at GEOINT this year is really around NGA's mission imperatives and what our mission focus is, which I think is important because we deliver technology to deliver on our mission, not for itself. And so we wanted to write our tech focus areas around our mission priorities, and really they are what we are focused on as an agency, whereas the software way is about how we will deliver in the future. This document really stands on the shoulders of those who came before us and those working elsewhere in government. It takes a lot of inspiration from OMB's digital service playbook, as well as from the UK government's service standard. We met with both of those teams and talked about those documents, what they found worked, kind of if they were rewriting them, where they would make changes, and we were able to use that as the foundation to build off of. And then we also looked to industry, and specifically the DevOps research assessment, DORA, and some of the metrics that they have looked at over the last number of years to determine what metrics connect with high-performing teams and really that lead to better mission and better business outcomes. And so building off the work of others in government, you know, with the OMB Digital Service Playbook and out of the UK, as well as what industry had on the metric side, really was the foundation of how we built this document, but then we tailored it for our specific needs as a combat support agency and as an intelligence agency. Yeah, is the difference there security when it comes down to it? Sometimes, I think a couple of thoughts. One, at NGA, we're moving to more of a common environment for how we build software, and that has really important security implications as well as important reasons for how fast we can go. And so this document we tailored to include pieces of that common environment that we are providing. We call that NGA Core, our common operations release environment. And so we wanted to tailor it to NGA Core as well as you know some of those other documents are much more about citizen-facing services. And in NGA, we do have some of those, but not everything we do is, is open and public. And so some of the elements from those other documents didn't fit exactly, but we were able to build off the core of those documents in order to learn from those who came before and, and did a lot of really hard work and, and grow in a way that matches what we need at NGA. And yeah, I'm glad you brought up core, the common operating release environment. Could you could just explain a little bit more. What is that? Where is it at in terms of being rolled out across the agency? So you can think of core as an architectural transformation for us at NGA. Historically, we've let different teams choose their tools and their different processes of how they build software, and that led to some really important things, but it also led to a lot of fragmentation. And what we are trying to do is build one set of tooling and one set of processes 
and do it really well in a way that works for teams more broadly, rather than having every team rebuild these commodity components themselves. And so these are things like a common version control and a common pipeline for testing and deploying. And really, we think of Core as where we will build, release, and operate software to deliver on our mission. And we want to, again, you know, have a common place to do that rather than having each team have to come up with how they want to do that themselves. And will these these metrics that the document espouses, will that be baked into core? Is that where you'll kind of track progress? Absolutely. Thankfully, because we didn't have to come up with our own metrics, we use industry standard metrics. A lot of the tooling that NGA Core has, has the ability to capture these metrics built in, right? So as we get more people using this common environment, it should be easier and easier to automatically capture these metrics and understand how we are improving at them. I do want to make the point, though, that it definitely isn't only about the tools and the technology. The people and the processes that we have and that we talk about in the NGA software way are just as important and almost sometimes the hardest part of the equation. Yeah, the people piece, I think you had mentioned earlier how you wanted to build out product managers at NGA. But what does this kind of software workforce look like, if you will, at NGA right now? And where is it going? So I think about this both from the government side as well as from the industry side, because industry does develop most of the software that we use and and is and will continue to be an incredibly important partner for us. On the government side, a few years ago, we stood up a developer core and started hiring government software developers, which has been important for bringing that expertise back into the agency. And again, we will continue to actually contract out most of the development we do. But having this expertise internally makes us understand software better and helps us work with whoever it is that's, that's actually building the software. The way software is built in the world has changed pretty significantly in the past decade. And there are other roles beyond software development that have really grown in their importance. And one of those roles is the product manager and really the person that acts as the interface between those end users and the development team and understands the vision for the product, creates the roadmap, and makes sure that what is being built is actually both useful and actually used. And so in the software way, we talk a lot about that role of product manager, how we have to deeply understand our users' needs and how we need to build with our users and not just for them. And so that's been a discipline that we are bringing into NGA and that we're helping grow and that I think will be really important for our future, how we make sure that we are building not just any software, but the right software. And it's actually delivering on our mission, which is the whole reason that we're here. And, you know, obviously the it emphasizes speed. The uh, authority to operate process often seems like a big hurdle to that speed. Do, do you want to get to a continuous ATO at NGA? What, how does that move forward for you guys? This is such an important question. And again, this is a process question and a people question as much as a technology one. We have a pretty fundamental belief that by moving towards a common environment, we can build speed into our processes more effectively. So instead of getting software when a team thinks it's totally built and then it goes to the security team and they start you know, the accreditation process then, how can we start doing that earlier? And similarly with testing, right? And so by having a common environment, we think we can start building some of these processes into the tooling and really work with our security folks, our testing folks, all the different people across the agency on making sure that we are delivering as quickly to mission as possible. And so I think really this this movement from kind of ad hoc and teams coming up with their own processes 
to a common approach will give us an opportunity to automate things and to move faster than we have before. On our tech-focused areas, you know, we talked about our mission imperatives probably in more detail than we have publicly. But even before those mission imperatives in our opening letter, we talk about some fundamental changes that this community is going through and that we think are crucial for our future and are driving a lot of our work. First is how workflows begin and moving from that being human-initiated to machine-initiated and really the amount of speed that that can give us and the importance of that. The second being around what data types and what sources we primarily use and moving from primarily using U.S. government sources and focusing on imagery and video to employing all data sources from all data types, including terrestrial, including non-traditional. I think that's a really important part of our future. And then the third being which domain is primary and recognizing that in the past we've often aggregated data on the high side and that has served a lot of purposes and been useful in some ways. But what our customers are demanding, what our mission is demanding is using the lowest domain possible. And so that shift from high side aggregation to using the lowest domain possible, I think, is a massive shift for our community. And and so the way that we are concisely articulated those in our tech focus areas around how workflows begin, around which data types and sources are prioritized, and around which domains we use, I think will drive a lot of our work into the future and is, is important for the direction that we're heading in. How does that shift from high to low side manifest itself through software development under under this new strategy? The concept we use for a lot of our software development, we call it build low, push high. And so as much as possible, we are building software on the unclassified domain. This is important in a lot of our workforce and our contractor workforce doesn't want to be in a skiff every day. And also a lot of our software itself isn't necessarily classified. The data that's in it might be classified, but often, not in all cases, but often our software isn't. And so in those cases, we can work on the low side. And then as part of core, we have built a way to automatically sync data across domains so that there aren't as many humans carrying around hard drives and copying things. And that's really, right, like those process pieces are almost just as important as the technology pieces. And enabling us to build low and move high, I think, will help us move faster and really increase the diversity that we're able to have in the people working on our products and in how that work gets done. Alex Lair, Chief Technology Officer at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's GeoInt coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. 
Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective about my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.